to see some of you there. All right, we're in Genesis, and uh, we're going to take our Bibles and turn to Genesis chapter 16. That's our Bible text for this morning as we're making our way through the book of Genesis. We're going to take the whole chapter here this morning. Genesis chapter 16, if you choose to use the church Bible, that's page 11. Page 11. I'll give you a moment to turn there. I encourage you, uh, as we, especially in longer texts of Scripture, um, easy to lose track of where we are or maybe even lose attention. If you follow along in your own Bible, it, it assists you greatly. So let me encourage you to do that as I read. Genesis chapter 16. Hear the word of the Lord. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Adam, Abram, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to you for, to your embrace. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from? And where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, Return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant, and you shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing. For she said, truly, here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore, the well was called Bir Laharoi. It lies between Kadesh and Berid. And Hagar bore Abram a son. And Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. This is God's word. Please join me in a prayer as we ask for the Lord's help in this time. Father, a moment ago we sang a prayer that you would speak that we would receive the food of your holy word, that you'd plant that tr truth deep within us to shape and fashion us. We know, Father, that that's what your word does. So for our part, Father, we want to give our attention to your word. We need divine help for that. We're so easily distracted. 
Lord, it's also possible that the one proclaiming it could be a distraction. So we ask that you would intervene, even direct my voice and my thoughts, even as I'm preaching. We are all under this word, Father. We need to hear from you. So please accomplish your purposes in this room as we listen. And give us those minds and hearts and attitudes that are expectant, that believe truly that you want to speak with us so that we receive what you have for us. Lord, we need you. Help us now. To the glory of Jesus. Amen. What does it mean to see? Of course, that sounds like a rather elementary question with a very obvious answer. But I was thinking about this, and I want you to think about it too. For us, seeing, or the the more active looking, we get this as one of using one of our senses, the eyes, to find out new information. And even when we see something we've seen before, and this is because we're subject to forces and circumstances that are beyond our control, even seeing familiar things may bring information or perspective that that wasn't previously known. I think we get that. When we see, we are passive. So, for example, you might, you might look at your husband and notice a bruise on his hand. So you ask, what happened? You'll say, oh, I hit it with a hammer. And that will lead to further questions about what he was working on. You get it. You're finding out things that you did not know. And I, and I realize I'm stating what is merely very obvious to all of us, but I say these things to focus on what it means that God sees, because the way God sees is very different than the way we see. In our text, Hagar, this is Sarai's maidservant, she comes to understand something about God. Verse 13, she called on the name of the Lord who spoke to her and said of him, you are a God of seeing. Now, other translations, maybe you have one of these like the NAS or the King James, you are the God who sees. Of course, you might be thinking, well, yes, of course, God sees. But what does it mean that God sees? And why did it matter to Hagar? Why did it matter to Abram and Sarai and the Israelites? And why does it matter to us that God sees? We have to make clear the witness of the Scriptures and God's self-revelation that God's seeing is not passive. And whether Hagar knows the the deep significance of the thing that she stated or not, the text before us reveals a theological truth. It's simply called providence. Now, that, that word providence isn't in the Bible, but the concept is all over the Scriptures. So providence, that is divine providence. That's God's sovereign governance over all things to accomplish His good purposes. So it's not passive. It's not even reactive. It is proactive. God sees the future. He knows the future. He has decided the future. And while God does not tempt to evil, He enfolds it amazingly. He enfolds this evil into His divine purposes. And God proactively determined to accomplish His good purposes in Abram's life for the sake of His own divine plan. And we can be sure of this, brothers and sisters, this morning as we look at this Bible text we can be sure that God is proactively working in our lives to accomplish His purposes. That is true if you're His child. So what we want to do this morning is see and discover what 
God sees. That's how we're going to look at this text this morning. I didn't give you my points in advance like I often do. We'll just go one at a time. So the first thing I want to focus on is the fact that God sees Abram's doubt. God sees Abram's doubt. Perhaps you've heard the expression, absence makes the heart grow fonder. It's often used, right? The idea that if someone's away, you're much more likely to have this increased level of fondness for that individual. Uh, 19th century English poet and playwright Thomas Haynes Bailey actually borrowed that phrase. He put it in a poem about, I think about Ireland. But anyway, or an island. I can't remember what that, uh, that island was. Anyway, the point is, he borrowed that phrase from an early uh, 17th century poem. But what he did was he, he changed the essence of it completely. In the original, it went like this. Absence makes the heart grow fonder for somebody else. That is not, that is not the sentiment that, we, that we're thinking of. When, uh, when we say that. See, human nature, weak as it is, really backs this up. Absence makes the heart grow fonder for someone, something else. That's our weakness. And in Abram's case, the absence of an heir, offspring through his wife Sarai, increased his fondness, not so much for Hagar, but for the idea of an heir and thus revealed his own weakness of faith, weakness of trust in the Lord. Now, Abram doubted, but the Lord saw it. And the Lord seeing it, that means he providentially enfolded it into his greater purposes. Now, look at the text with me. Verse 1, Now, Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. There's just simply a fact. No children. She is barren. She had been barren for some time. They knew the promise. They were supposed to have offspring. How would this nation come unless there's children? She was barren. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarah said to Abram, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. So now she has decided in her mind that the Lord will not give her children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. I, I think we get the desire, right? It's, it's, it's hardwired into the human psyche as a creation command, be fruitful and multiply. We get this desire to have offspring. I know some people say, no, they don't want children, but, but by and large, most people want children somehow. Now, to our modern Christian sensibilities, doing something like what Sarai did that would certainly seem to be a road too far, and for good reason, right? Considered today, that would certainly be an assault on the marriage covenant. But even if Abram and Sarai's plan is morally indefensible, it is understandable. Let me explain. Sarai offering Hagar to Abram was really not an uncommon practice. An ancient legal document, you may be familiar with this, called Code of Hammurabi, writings from an Akkadian city called Nuzi. They reveal that, that Sarai's plan was actually a common practice for childless, childlessness. As Sarah said of Hagar, that I may obtain children by her. And this practice was not uncommon, such that even uh, the grandson of Abraham, Abram, Jacob, and we'll get to this in chapter 30, this practice was imitated by his wives. Both Rachel and Leah gave their maidservants, Bilhah and Zilpah, 
to Jacob in order to conceive more children. They weren't childless just to get more. It became a sort of a conceiving contest. Who can have more kids? And even the, in, a, in a sense, that, that Leverite marriage law, if you're familiar with that in the Old Testament, that law wherein if a um, uh, husband and wife in a family did not conceive, and the husband died, leaving, leaving a widow. The law said that the, a surviving brother would produce offspring in his now dead brother's wife, and that child would then be reckoned to his now dead brother. See, the importance of a rightful heir in these ancient families cannot be overstated, cannot be. So Sarai came up with a plan. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. Now, I'm going to draw a conclusion here. And I think we're meant to see this from the text. I take it to mean that Abram didn't trust the voice of the Lord. All we have to do is kind of rewind back to the covenant that, that the Lord made to Abram. The covenant that he gave him for numerous offspring. He said nothing to Abram about acquiring another wife. That promise would be fulfilled with the wife that he had. So after Abram lived, had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, so a fair amount of time has gone by, 10 years, long time. He's getting old, his wife's old, they're barren, what is he going to do? Abram relents. Abram's wife took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram as her, hus her husband as a wife. And he went into Hagar and she conceived. Now, just taking this, this episode by itself, we can see that there are Parallels, And in fact, Genesis is full of parallels that the author wants us to see. Here we see another. Sarai wanted a good, a good thing. She wanted offspring for Abram. I want you to remember back to the Garden of Eden. Eve, she wanted a good thing. She wanted wisdom. But in both cases, the desired thing was acquired in the wrong way. And that always, always, always leads to trouble. Example, in Genesis 3.17, even the language. Genesis 3.17, Adam listened to the voice of his wife, took the fruit. Here in Genesis 16.2, Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. Genesis chapter 3, verse 6, Eve gave the fruit to her husband. Here in Genesis chapter 16, verse 3, Sarai gave Hagar to her husband. You see the parallel. So clearly, the author is not taking a, a neutral position in the actions of Abram, not at all we see on display, full display, Abram's doubt. But God, God sees Abram's weakness of faith in a different way. He sees it. He is not surprised by it. And in spite of this, even though Abram's faith is weak, God's plan with Abram is not thwarted. Now, you might say that Abram here took a detour, but then the Lord worked it into his own plan to put, exactly, put him exactly where he wanted him. Now think about that. This is God's ordaining plan. He sees. He knows what Abram's going to do. He knows what Sarai's going to do. He ordained it. That's tough language. We have to use something like that. God doesn't tempt evil doesn't put it in the minds and hearts of people to do evil, and yet somehow in his grand purposes, he plans for and builds in Abram's doubt and weakness of faith. 
Now, Abram's going to experience the, the direct consequences from his own doubt. But God still is going to fulfill his plan just as he had determined. Now, the child that will be born to Hagar, he is not the child of the covenant. Yet, amazingly, the Lord promises to fulfill in Hagar's child something that would also come to the as yet unconceived chosen offspring, which will be Isaac. We'll, we'll meet him later through Sarai. Hear, hear what the Lord said about this offspring. Okay, this is Genesis chapter 13. He says to Abram, I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. That's through the child of the promise. That ultimately would be fulfilled through Isaac. We'll come later. But look what the Lord says to Hagar about her child. Verse 10, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. Now, God's not making a switch. God's not saying, hmm, you know, Hagar's got this child and we should be reckoned to Sarah. You know what, let's, let's, uh, let's change it up here. Maybe Abram thought that it would work that way. That's not God's plan. Yet, something of that blessing for Abram's offspring will be multiplied like the dust of the earth, uncountable. Now, it remains to be discovered whether this is good for Abram and his offspring or not. Now, it's a spoiler alert here. It's not, right? It's not good for Abram. But God sees that too, right? God sees that. He sees. He rules. He rules over all circumstances, ultimately for his own purposes and ultimately for the good of Abram and his offspring. Now, what's to be learned from this? Like Adam, like Abram, in spite of overwhelming reminders that God's word can be trusted, we so often wobble in our faith, don't we? This came up in, uh, in men's coffee on Friday. So I, along with others, we, we testified to having those moments where you doubt. Maybe you've thought this. Now I'm in a church and raising my children in the faith, and, and you have that moment of, is this, is this real? Am I just, have I been deceived by all of this? Is Jesus truly the Son of God? But then what happens, the Spirit snaps us back with a reminder of the Word of God or the joy of, of gospel fellowship like this to constantly speak. You see, that absence made the heart grow fonder for something else. That's true. I see this all the time. Uh, COVID kind of did this, drove some people to their screen, and for good reason. But some people never left the screen. That's been testified all over, all over the world. Absence made the heart grow fonder for Sunday leisure. Absence made the heart grow fonder for anything but the fellowship of the believers. And that's not everyone who's watching on the other side of the screen, so no disrespect to those of you who are at home, because you can't get out or because you do not feel safe and you're doing everything you can to connect with the church family. It's not about you. Absence does that. Weak faith. Faith weakens in the absence of affirmation and confirmation and reminders of the Word of God. 
we have passing doubts as believers, but when we're in the company of God's people, the reminder of the word of God, no, no, that's true, it's true. The spirit of God confirms his word to others. Well, a couple of things to note here. When we are weak of faith, know this. If you are a child of God, he will preserve your faith. That's true. If you have true faith, like Abram, you may take some detours. And perhaps you're on one right now. But if you're a true child of God, you cannot be lost. That's true. The Lord will preserve your faith. Because that faith was a gift from God, Ephesians 2.8. And the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable, says a Roman, Romans 11.29. Jesus said this, All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. God will preserve you. Second thing to note, when you doubt, when that doubt comes, when that temptation to doubt comes, know this, he will grow your faith. The Lord will grow your faith. Paul, the apostle, says this to the Philippian church, Roman, uh, Romans, Philippians 1, verse 6, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. If you have trusted in Christ, if you've put your faith in him, that good work that has begun in you, God will complete it at the day of Jesus Christ. So the means of your, your growing your faith, the means of the Lord growing your faith really are rather ordinary. They are. Simply being reminded of the gospel when we gather like this for fellowship, when we're singing songs that focus on the Lord Jesus Christ, when we're together for fellowship and prayer, and when you intentionally take in God's word, reading it for yourself. God sees Abram's doubt. He enfolds it into his grand purposes. He sees your doubt. And he enfolds that into his grand purposes for you. Second, God sees Hagar's contempt. God sees Hagar's contempt. It's probably not unique to our time, but it just feels like there's a lot of contempt going around, right? A lot of it in the world. Politicians show contempt for their political opponents. Some of these same politicians seem to have contempt for their own constituents. Many citizens feel and express contempt for certain politicians. Some people feel contempt towards others who have different views on morality, the environment. Masks, vaccines, you, you've seen it. When a child rebels, he may have contempt for his parents, for the values that he was taught. T to feel the contempt of another really is the ultimate disrespect. And contempt is the word that Hagar, uh, the word described in our text, Hagar's attitude towards Sarai, contempt. Look at the text with me again, verse 4. And when she saw, Hagar, saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant for your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. Now what's going on here is Sarah's recognizing that, that Hagar has usurped her. And she's saying, Abram, you've got to deal with this. This is on you. I gave her to you for offspring. 
you have allowed her to elevate herself. Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. Contempt is, is, is to treat as insignificant, to, de, to belittle, even despise. And that's Hagar's attitude towards Sarai. Now, back to this Hammurabi code, this ancient law system from that area. That, that code stipulated, this is what Sarai's participating in, right? It stipulated that the childless wife would provide a concubine. So that, that was really part of that cultural command. Not commanded by God, but culturally speaking. The wife whose childless provides a concubine. And that substitute, having conceived a child, should not elevate herself to supplant the wife. Through the arrangement, then, the wife, the primary wife, would retain legal rights over the offspring of the concubine. As Sarai said in verse 2, it may be that I shall obtain children by her. Now, what happens here is that uh, Hagar's contempt for Sarai reveals that she's going against the custom, and she's seeking to elevate herself. So what Abram does, he reestablishes the primacy of Sarai and gives her the right to deal with her, her as a maidservant, not as an equal. And this leads to Sarai's harsh dealings, her jealousy perhaps, drive Hagar away. Now, it's got to be said that, that Sarai's cruelty to Hagar is not defended in the text. Neither is it approved. It just, the text just simply tells us that it happened. And, and just, I think you know this. This kind of abuse is not acceptable in any way. But this is the ancient world. We're just being simply told what happened. Sarah, Sarai operated within that culture. Again, Hagar's contempt leads to Sarai's harsh treatment, which leads to Hagar fleeing, which leads then to the Lord visiting her. And this is instructive in the big picture of Israel's history. This is instructive. Now, in verse 1, Look back in verse 1. It's significant here that we're told that Sarai's servant Hagar was Egyptian. That's pointed out. Why? Now, we can just maybe as a point of history, we could maybe surmise that, that Abram acquired her while still in Egypt, maybe as a kind of a result of his ill-fated relationship with Pharaoh over the fact that Abram lied. This is my sister. Didn't reveal that she was his wife. Maybe that happened because he left there, prospered. Maybe Hagar was the servant given. But what Hagar's contempt for Sarah does is, is it prefigures really the later experience of the Israelites. One commentator that I read described this as a type in reverse. Do you know what a type is? A type is a, it's an historical event that prefigures a greater and more significant reality. So, big example from Scripture as a type. The lamb that was sacrificed at the Passover. The Passover lamb is a type. It's a real historical event. A lamb was sacrificed, covering the blood and the, 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 the lintel and the doorposts, protecting the family from death. Jesus, as John the, uh, John the baptizer declares, is the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, thus protecting all who believe in him, all who apply the blood by faith, the blood of the cross, are protected ultimately from eternal death. So that's a type. And so, so what Hagar is is a type in reverse. Hagar, the Egyptian slave, is oppressed by Sarai. 
the Hebrew. And she is driven into the wilderness to find relief. Later, later as prophesied, the Hebrews would be enslaved in Egypt and treated harshly and eventually driven into the wilderness to find relief, a, a type in reverse. But again, back to the contempt. What's, what Hagar illustrates and what Abram experiences and really what we need to take to heart, brothers and sisters, is that there always has been conflict between God's plan and purposes. God's plans and purposes and those things that are of the flesh, that is, of the world. We're going to see this later in chapter 21, verse 9. We'll see how Ishmael is found mocking Isaac, and that necessitates a separation. Plans that man makes that are apart from God will be in conflict with the things that God is doing. And Abram, seeking offspring through Hagar, was of the flesh and not of the Spirit. Do you follow? This would ultimately be proved in the world, revealed through the prophetic word to Hagar about her son. Listen to what verse 12 says. He, he gets the name Ishmael, he shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him, and he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. Over against, be an enemy of, be an opposed to all his kinsmen. Now, Isaac, the son of the promise, would later be born. Isaac and Ishmael are kin, but they would be in direct conflict, and that conflict would intensify for their offspring. Now listen, just a simple observation. I don't know if I'm stretching this too much from the text, but Muslims, followers of Islam, they claim their religious heritage back to Abraham through Ishmael. Now I want to make too broad a generalization. Not everyone who holds to Islam wants to be at war with all the other nations of the world. But certainly it is true that a, a, a section of devout Muslims, particularly ones to hold to the, the Quran very closely teaching Sharia law, they do. We see this conflict played out on the world stage. Many devout Muslims are committed to the destruction of Jews. Not all. I don't want to slander them. But many are committed to the destruction of Jews and to the West in general, and that's all of us. And we're watching that unfold, are we not, in the Middle East right now? Watching what looks like, I don't want to overstate this. It, it's, it's ugly, though, and I know all of you who have served in Afghanistan feel the weight of this, what looks like a, a surrender. And you're rightly concerned about the welfare of fellow Americans who are trapped encourage you to pray for the protection of Christians and others who fear their slaughter. But we see that played out. These people make their claim, descendant from Ishmael. The scripture says he shall be over and against his kinsmen. Again, I don't say this to engender any hatred for those beholding to this false religion, and it is. Because here's the truth of the matter. There is a rescue in Christ for all who believe whether that's Muslims, right? Whether that is Jews or Hindus or Buddhists or humanists, there is a rescue for all in Christ. And so, like us, they need to hear and believe the gospel. And, praise God, there are Muslims who are hearing and believing the gospel and they're renouncing their trust in Allah and coming to true faith in Jesus Christ. Yeah. Well, while man's contemptuous and ill-fated plans are in conflict with the Lord's. 
the Lord enfolds some of the most grievous sins into his plans. And you know this because the greatest expression of contempt for God when the Son of God came into the world, God saw what happened. Again, God seeing here is not passive, but it illustrates the point in the most profound way of God's seeing the contempt and enfolding it into his purposes. His seeing is providential. Jesus came to his own people and they did not receive him. John 1.11 Hear what the apostles declared after they were released. They were preaching Christ and they were imprisoned by the religious leaders for preaching about Christ. Here's what they say, Acts chapter 4. Really the, the, the whole church in Jerusalem we're, we're given the sense that this is what they declare together. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. They're talking about the, the crucifixion of the Son of God. These people doing evil, they were doing what your hand, your plan had predestined to take place, that Jesus would be crucified. See, God saw the contempt that the Jewish leaders had for Jesus, and he enfolded the murder of his son into this grand plan to save some of the very ones who joined their voices to mock him. We, we, sing, we sing a song, um, Ashamed I hear my mocking voice call out from among the scoffers. It was my sin that put him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. We mock in our sinful fleshly selves. We have contempt for God. And that contempt crucifies the very Son of God. And God takes that act of sin in our behalf in the world and turns it into the very means of making us part of his family. Well, daily we experience the, the flesh-spirit conflict, don't we? The flesh has contempt for the things of God. We feel it every day. We fight it. The war between our flesh and the spirit rages in us. And we have to be aware of it, don't we, brothers and sisters? We have to seek to live according to the promise of God in Christ. Just the Apostle Paul exhorts the Galatians, but also us in this way. Paul says, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. That's the war. Our fleshly way is in conflict with the Spirit of God, but we have to beware of it. Walk by the Spirit. And God sees us. He's aware of the fight. And you know what? He's using it for your own good. There is a benefit in trials. And there's a benefit in trials that include temptation. Just as James says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know, 
that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. That war that you're in has value. Fight against the deeds of the flesh and walk by the Spirit of God. And in it, God sees what you're going through and he's preparing you to be steadfast and he's forming you into someone as complete, lacking in nothing. Finally, God sees Ishmael's purpose. God sees Ishmael's purpose. Now, there's a, a, a stage in child development. I think it begins at about the three-year mark that children want to know why. And I see this in my grandson, Avery. He just turned three. And if you've been engaged in one of these conversations, it's endless. Why did you do that, Papa? Well, I'll give him the answer. And then he says, why? And then I give another answer to which he says, why? And it just keeps going. Why? 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 At some point in time, he said, just because? <laughs> I don't have any more answers. Now, sometimes there's not enough answers for the questions of a toddler, but just because we grow up does not mean that we stop wondering why. We wonder why. Now, I know. I know that God sees all things. I know that he is sovereign, that he providentially rules all things. But I find that I would really like to see what God sees. And the amazing thing is, we have the key. We have the key to see what God sees. The key that Abram did not have. The key that the Israelites did not have. That key is the cross of Christ. That is the key. We can see God sees Ishmael's purpose. And because of the text of Scripture and because of the key of the cross, it helps us to understand. So back to our Bible text. Uh, verse 7 the angel of the Lord found her, that is Hagar, by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I'm fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. Now, Hagar is on the way to Shur. That's the direction of Egypt. She's an Egyptian. So it looks like she's heading back to her, to her family. Now, that abuse must have been so extreme for Hagar to attempt this. She surely would have died if the Lord had not intervened. That's how desperate she feels. And in her desperation and in her distress, she is visited by the angel of the Lord. Now, it's important that we see here that this is no mere angel. This is what is called a Christophany. That is a pre-incarnate visitation of the Son of God. Look at verse 13. Here's why I say this is a Christophany. This is the Son of God showing himself. Verse 13, so she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. The Lord, Yahweh. She called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. She addresses him and acknowledges his care for her. You are a God of seeing. She's saying that's not passive seeing. That's providential seeing. El Roy, God of seeing, for truly, for she said, truly here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore, the well was called Bir Laharoi. It lies between Kadesh and Beren. So what Hagar does is she listens to the Lord. And I would suggest to you, she believes the Lord. She understands that he is the one who sees, who providentially governs all things. She obeys when she is told to return to Sarai and submit to her in spite of the harsh treatment. Think about this. Why, 
Why would the Lord send her in an abusive situation? Again, to our modern sensibilities, this doesn't make sense. Yet, in God's grand purposes, it absolutely does. And in that intervention that, that Hagar experiences, we see a hint of what will become clearer in the New Testament. Again, I said the interpretive key to see how God sees. You see, if, if Hagar is to experience the Lord's blessing, it is under Abram. That's the only way. And she wants that blessing. She wants the Lord's blessing. She wants the Lord's protection. And that confirmed to Hagar what the Lord said to Abram back in chapter 12, verse 3. Listen, back to the covenant. I will bless those who bless you. Him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Hagar returning to Sarai makes clear that this blessing to all of the nations, including Egyptians, comes through Abram. Hagar would find that blessing even though she had no familial, no physical connection to Abram and his family. She simply believed the Lord. Now we see other examples of this in Scripture. Others who, who came to be part of the family of God who were not descended out of the lineage from Abraham. We have uh, a harlot in the city of Jericho named Rahab. She protected the, the Israelite spies as they were scoping out the land. She said, our hearts are melted. I believe in your God. And they offered her protection when she hid the spies from her own countrymen. She was a Jebusite. She was a Canaanite. Maybe not a Jebusite, but a Canaanite. Then there's Ruth. She's a Moabite. She attaches herself to Naomi, even though her husband's dead. And she says, your people, those will be my people. Your God will be my God. Both of these are reckoned in the family history of those who ultimately led to the revelation of the Christ, the Messiah. Well, we fast forward to the New Testament, and we find the greater purpose, more explicitly explained, the greater purpose for for Ishmael, for Hagar, for this whole scene. It's the revelation that the blessing of the Lord, the inclusion in his forever family, is not ultimately one of physical lineage. It's not. Ishmael reveals that the physical connection to Abraham was never the means of eternal blessing. But that means of eternal blessing was, in fact, the promise of God. And here I'm going to take you to Galatians in the New Testament, chapter 4. Now this is a little bit, I, I had to pare this down to one section, but I want you to follow me on the logic here. First I'll read it, Galatians 4. For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman, Ishmael, one by a free woman. That would be Isaac, Hagar, Sarah. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. So there's a comparison. God made a promise of offspring. Sarai would conceive eventually. The one conceived through flesh, through man's plan, Hagar, Ishmael. Now Paul says here in Galatians 
4.24. Now, this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. And here's where it gets strange. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. Now, I'll just stop there from the Galatians passage. Let me explain this. The situation with Ishmael illustrates that if we put our confidence in the flesh, that is to say, if we put our confidence in our own plans like Abram did in seeking offspring with Hagar, it's a dead end. But here's the shocking thing, that the Apostle Paul draws a connection between Hagar, the Egyptian slave woman, and Mount Sinai, the place where the law was given to the Israelites. And not only that, he also makes a connection to Jerusalem, the seat of messianic authority. All things that Jews held dear. The Apostle Paul says, you've taken that. You're depending on that. That is, in fact, of the flesh. So, lumping the most revered Jewish institution to the events of Hagar and Ishmael. So the point here is that Jews who put their confidence in pedigree and in law-keeping, they were lumped in with the failed attempt of Abram to get an heir through Hagar. Do you see the point? That's really what the letter of Galatians is all about. And Paul, Paul is warning them against eternal suicide by religion. So here's the point. The way to God's blessing for all the nations, whether physically descended from Abraham or not, your way and my way of inclusion into the eternal family of God is by faith. And it's the same faith by which Abraham himself was declared righteous before God in Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, the last chapter. And he believed, and the Lord credited or counted it to him as righteousness. So, if you want to be included in God's eternal family, Il Ishmael illustrates for us in the negative. Don't put your confidence in having been born into a religious family. Just because you're Christians or believers does not your protection. Your confidence should not be in your family. That is a dead end. Don't put your confidence in the fact that you're an upstanding citizen. That's a dead end. Don't put your confidence in your own acts of charity, your church attendance, your service. That's a dead end. Don't put your confidence in the fact that by comparison, well, you're better than someone else. It's a dead end. Don't put your confidence in anything but Christ himself. Put your confidence in the promise of God doesn't make any sense to our world, does it? What, what just, just trust? I mean, it's, it's, I'm not measure, it's not, it's not a merit scale? No. Seems foolish to the world, doesn't it? We all know people who claim to be religious, who believe that they've got some sort of pedigree before God. Well, you know, I've got this list, the resume. No. There's no resume. Paul says to the Corinthians, Corinthians, first letter. God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. 
God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. So that, here's the purpose, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. You're a child of God today. You did nothing. And I'm so grateful. I'm so grateful that's true. Because you could not do enough. Praise God, Jesus did it all. Trusting in anything but Christ alone is a dead end. I think there's a comfort, brothers and sisters, in knowing that God sees. I, I take a comfort in it. He providentially governs all things. What Abram did, conceiving of Ishmael through, through Hagar, the contempt, Abram's wobbly faith, sees it all. So if you doubt, if you have doubted, God sees it. Know this, even, even when you're weak, even when you wobble, know that God preserves you and grows you. And so pray that he would. When you feel those moments of weakness, when you feel that doubt rushing in, just pray, God, give me confidence in you. Remind me of your word and go back to his word. And know this. There's always this conflict between the things of the flesh, man's plans, and God's plans. So as long as we're in these bodies of death, as the Apostle Paul calls it, we're going to be at war. Our flesh is at war with the Holy Spirit. And so be aware of the battle. Stay in the fight. Pray for grace to overcome the vestiges of contempt that remain within. God sees absolutely everything. And so we need to have our minds reframed. Everything he does in the world is meant, is meant to point us to Christ. So don't miss it. We can easily get distracted thinking that the purpose of this world is about finding fulfillment in the things that we want to pursue, even good things like having a family or serving your nation or your community, being competent at your job, good things. But all of these things, apart from Christ, those, those are dead ends. Let's take the exhortation. Live our lives according to the promise of God in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we we acknowledge our weakness, the battle that is at war within us for our flesh, flesh against your spirit. And yet, God, we know that in all things you see, you work, you providentially care, you preserve. Lord, you're accomplishing your perfect will. And at the end of time, every nation, every people group, everyone will will see that Jesus Christ is Lord. And all of us who have come to you, Father, by faith in him, we will with joy see that revelation and we hope for that day to come soon. So God, until that day, we say, keep us faithful with the knowledge that you providentially govern all things right down to our very minute moments. Keep us faithful. For the glory of Jesus, we pray.